You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm Doug McKenna, university registrar at George Mason University, and this is the Academic Calendar. Hello! Thanks for listening to For the Record. I'm your host, Doug McKenna. Today, you'll finally get to listen to the long-promised episode on the academic calendar. The academic calendar is one of those things that a lot of people take for granted, and we call those people non-registrars. Registrars, on the other hand, we are super tight with the academic calendar. We both guide and are guided by the ins and outs of its various incarnations and nuances. Most people don't give it a second thought, but you, my dedicated, knowledgeable, and dare I say, devastatingly attractive listeners, you've given it more than a fugacious contemplation, and we're going to talk about it today. Now, there's a long history to get through, and I am but a nascent researcher doing this in my spare time. The research I've conducted is not nearly extensive nor comprehensive enough to fill a lit review, but that's okay, because I have no intention of writing a dissertation on the history of the academic calendar. If you have done a bunch of research on this, I would love to hear from you. Drop me a line at registrarpodcast at gmail.com. So today I want to walk us through the history of the academic calendar, then highlight some more recent challenges, and then we'll discuss some current trends and practical considerations. Sound good? Are you ready? Me too. To get to the roots of the academic calendar, we have to go way, way back to the beginning of higher education here in these United States. So really, that means when the white male children of landowners had their post-secondary learning become more formalized. We have to remember that the history of higher education is exclusionary. We have to remind ourselves that we've come a long way, but that there's still a long way to go. Also worth a note is that one of the first sources I looked at for information on the academic calendar is a book by C. James Kwan and Associates, published in 1979 as part of the Jossie Bass series in higher education, titled Admissions, Academic Records, and Registrar Services. The preface reads in part, quote, As early as 1930, the membership of the American Association of Collegiate Registrars and Admissions Officers, hey, wait a minute, Acro, I know them, asked for a source of reliable information defining the functions and duties of registrars and admissions officers. That definitely sounds like us. Quote, In 1949, ACRO commissioned a committee on special projects to study a handbook proposal, and in 1950, an ACRO committee recommended a three-step approach to the development of a national standard practice book for the association. In 1953, an abbreviated guide was published. Since that time, numerous committees and subcommittees have been formed to amplify this earlier work. End quote. That's big time. Way to go, Acro. It's nice to find reminders that we, as a professional organization, have been around for a long time, and that the work that the membership is doing today on various committees and initiatives may have long-lasting effects 
and implications for future registrars and admissions officers. I know, I know, we're not here to talk about how great ACRO is, though ACRO is great. And I can hear you thinking, Doug, you've been talking for a while now and you haven't said anything substantive about the history of the academic calendar. I'm getting to it. But before we get to it, I want to make one more reasonably large digression because I've been thinking about this a lot. The academic calendar is one of the unsung heroes of the higher education enterprise, right? Just stay with me here for a minute. Who else was a previously unsung hero? Not flawless, but unsung. Well, I'll tell you. I also don't think that it is a coincidence that academic calendar and Alexander Hamilton have the same number of syllables. I can't help but think of the transcript as George Washington. He's really the rock, and the transcript is of utmost importance for us as registrars. So it's no surprise that the transcript's right-hand man would be the academic calendar. We just need to find our Leslie Odom Jr. as Aaron Burr, who obviously would be representing fall break, and Davi Diggs as the Marquis de Lafayette, clearly study abroad programs, and then get someone to convince Lin-Manuel Miranda to adapt the rest of the musical, and we will have a hit. Calendar! No? Okay. If you're still with me, thank you. Now, to the previously scheduled programming. Harvard College was the first institution of higher learning founded in America in 1636. Harvard University is situated on the traditional and ancestral homelands of the Massachusetts tribe. Harvard evolved alongside the persistence of the Massachusetts, the Nipmuc, and the Wampanoag nations. Located near the Charles River, the area long served as a site of meeting, exchange, and diplomacy among nations. Now, when it was formed, Harvard followed the four-term academic calendar system in use at the time at Cambridge and Oxford. The academic year began in August and was a year-round calendar with the 12 months divided evenly into four terms. Those terms were named Hillary, Easter, Trinity, and Michaelmas. It followed this model for roughly 165 years. And already I find myself pondering why those names fell out of favor and were replaced with fall, spring, and summer. Other colonial colleges in America did not adhere as closely to the British model. William and Mary, for example, founded in 1693 on lands originally inhabited by the Cherenoaka, Nottaway, Chickahominy, Eastern Chickahominy, Mattapanai, Monacan, Nansamond, Nottaway, Pamunkey, Potawomac, Upper Mattapanai, and the Rappahannock tribes, they were using a three-term calendar in 1736, retaining Hillary, Easter, and Trinity, but dropping the Michaelmas one, probably because no one could pronounce it. The academic year began in late September or early October and ran through late June or early July. And this three-term system was the dominant model in the 18th and 19th century. The two-term, or semester, model 
didn't appear until the early part of the 19th century and probably originated at Princeton in 1823. Princeton was founded in the ancestral homelands of the Lenape territory. A desire for better articulation with public secondary schools was seen as a driving factor in the development of the two-term semester system. And this hooks in the adoption of the Carnegie unit as a standardizing influence both for high schools and for colleges. So feel free to revisit that episode of For the Record from July 2020. James Davis, an associate professor of higher education at the University of Denver, originally Cheyenne and Arapahoe land, writes, The semester calendar was an attempt to accommodate the needs of an agrarian society and resulted in a design which excluded the three-month growing season and divided the remaining nine months of study into two sections. Students attended a rigorous daily schedule of classes and recitations, often with one instructor, and, semester by semester, worked their way through a series of prescribed courses. So there are basically three types of calendars, semester, quarter, and trimester. And within the semester, there are also three different flavors. The traditional semester, the new or early semester, and the 414, which is basically semesters with an intercession. The traditional semester is so-called because it's the one that Princeton put into use in the mid-1800s, and it was the one that was predominantly used all the way up until the 1960s. The fall traditional semester begins in September and ends in January. Then there's a short break, and the spring traditional semester begins in late January and ends in late May or early June. The early semester is similar, except its fall term ends before the end of December, and then spring starts up again in mid-January and ends in early May. And the 414 combines elements of the fall early semester with the spring traditional semester and inserts a one-month term in January, sometimes referred to as an intercession because it falls in between the two other sessions. Almost every institution on the semester system today is on the early semester. And I've previously postulated that the rise of college football as a revenue-generating sport was influential in setting some academic calendars so that student-athletes would be free and available to play in bowl games. But there's probably a more nuanced and complex push-pull that's happened there. Students and faculty didn't want to have a break for the holidays and then return to take final exams. My high school did that, and it was dumb, dumb, dumb. In fact, in 1973, Marvin Bresler published a book titled, quote, Report of the Committee on the Future of College, which is a pretty awesome name for a committee, if I do say so myself. It's a committee at Princeton that addressed, well, the future of college. The fourth chapter in the book deals entirely with the structure of academic time. And, dear listeners, believe me when I say that it is a fascinating read. Maybe not for a normal person, but for me, it was my jam. It talks about the comparative educational merits of semesters and extra-term systems, 
the economic effects of expanding operations over the summer, and what trade-offs and compromises are involved with ending the fall semester before Christmas. There's also a section with a heading that reads, Variations in the Rhythm of Time and Motion. This is one of the reasons I love working in higher education. The point of this reference is to talk about the early semester, the one that ends before the winter holidays. These decisions are always proposed, debated, adjusted, and then voted on and enacted. And while these debates are sometimes settled issues, this passage, published in 1973, could have been read aloud verbatim at a recent faculty senate meeting. Quote, in deciding which of four versions of the calendar yielded the greatest benefits and the least costs, the commission was moved by two primary considerations. Classes should begin in the fall after Labor Day, a starting date for the first semester, which was scheduled as early as the last week in August, would disrupt family vacations and interfere with summer employment. And second, a one-week break in a fall term ending in December is essential and would serve the same functions as the present spring recess. A calendar which violates either of these stipulations is, in our judgment, unacceptable. I don't know why my voice did that while I was reading that passage. Maybe that's... Anyway, we'll talk a little bit about some of the other politics surrounding academic calendars in a minute. But first, back to the calendar types. The quarter system remains a popular academic calendar option. Places like Stanford and Ohio State are on the quarter system. A typical academic year begins in mid-August and then quarters begin in January, March, and June. But Doug, didn't you just finish telling us that Harvard used the quarter system from the get-go? Sort of. The original calendar at Harvard had four terms, but there were no lectures or disputations held during the summer term. And so the true four-quarters, 12-month, year-round calendar grew out of the summer school movement. The earliest summer institute for the training of teachers took place in 1839, and following the founding of Johns Hopkins on the unceded land of the Piscataway people in 1876 and the subsequent adoption of the German model for graduate education, the summer term began to be accepted as just another set of time that could be devoted to scholarly research. Quote, the quarter system began to break the ties between the academic calendar and the cycle of the agricultural year. Specialized types of extension and continuing education could be provided during the summer months, and students could accelerate their progress by attending year-round. The quarter system was an early attempt to relate the structure of the academic calendar to the goals and purposes of the educational enterprise. And this brings us to trimesters. The trimester system isn't as overtly popular. And I say it that way because a lot of institutions that are operating on the semester system officially are veering pretty close to a trimester system with the inclusion of their summer offerings. The trimester runs three terms of about 16 weeks each. There's actually a fun history with the trimester and the way that schools attempted to implement it following World War II with the influx of students, 
to relieve pressures on the physical plants of campuses. The University of Pittsburgh, founded on the ancestral lands of the Shawandasi Tula, Shawnee, and Osage peoples, launched the trimester system in 1959-1960, and by mid-1965, they'd run up a $15 million operating deficit. Part of the problem was that the summer trimester was only enrolling about half the number of students as in fall, but the institution was still paying 70% of the faculty on a full-year basis. Florida, yes, the entire state, eyeing an opportunity to increase the number of students without a big expansion of physical plant requirements, legislatively imposed the trimester system on the entire Florida higher ed system in 1961 and 1962. Faculty were asked to teach 25% more with only an 11% pay increase. They were also forced to condense their classes down to 12 weeks. Said one professor, quote, It simply didn't work. Students attended class less, read less, emerged with less, yet they got the same credit. They were shortchanged. Governor Hayden Burns ended the trimester experiment in Florida at the close of the 1965-1966 school year. So those are the basic types of academic calendars and a very brief overview of how they came to be. One important thing to note here is that, like so many other things in higher education, there isn't one right academic calendar. Daniel Coleman, in an article published in Research in Higher Education, titled Academic Calendar Change Impact on Enrollment Patterns and Instructional Outcomes, writes, quote, Calendar change has been common throughout the history of higher education. Institutions have implemented new calendars to improve the quality of education, the articulation process, the use of physical facilities, the use of student time, the opportunity for faculty development, and the options for scheduling. Although no calendar is ideal for every purpose, a calendar's usefulness is usually measured by how well the system meets the institution's specific needs. Linking that sentiment that no calendar is ideal for every purpose, we start to look at the way the academic calendar functions in contemporary American higher education. Even among institutions following the same basic category of calendaring, there are considerable differences and flexibility within those categories. Well, to an extent. Once your institution designates the calendar category that the institution will follow, certain limitations exist in the form of federal financial aid regulations, accreditation standards for awarding credit, and the very obvious logistical questions about holidays, breaks, reading days, final exams, and university events like convocations or commencement exercises. We are all bound by the same 52 weeks in a year. The academic calendar can also be leveraged as a tool for institutional inclusion. Aligning your institution's start dates with area community colleges or keeping the terms in sync with local area high schools can better position partnerships between your institution and those other institutions. As we've seen through the history of higher education, 
the calendar has shifted in order to enable better transferability and increased transfer articulations. It's worth a look at why your institution starts when it does and ends when it does to see if slight shifts could create a more inviting educational environment for your region. Over the past five years, I've seen a significant increase in pressures on the academic calendar, and specifically on the limitations of the semester system, with regards to modular course delivery. Raise your hand if you've ever been victimized by a modular calendar. What? He doesn't even go here. One of the strengths of the modular system is that time periods of suitable length are adapted to the requirements of the subject matter, rather than the course being fitted to a fixed time period. The modular system considers variability in the length of time needed and teaching styles required for teaching various subject matters. It also makes for a very challenging parts of term setup. And when multiple modules are squeezed into the overall semester, it can create some conflict with census dates, program academic standing calculations, and progression standards. What happens to the student who's registered only in the module that starts after the census date? What about a student who does not achieve the minimum acceptable grade for the program in the first module, but's already registered for classes in the second module? We wouldn't officially calculate academic standing in the middle of the semester. Our systems just aren't set up to do that, and our processes aren't set up to do that. But these are real-life examples that'll take creativity, attention to detail, probably some policy development, and obviously we'll need the registrar to shepherd those efforts. Modular calendars will increase, especially following the shift to online course delivery during COVID, along with the rise of 100% online programs and the creation and propagation of micro-credentials. So, our work with academic calendars is not going to go away, and it certainly isn't going to get easier. So what's next with the academic calendar? Well, going back to Dr. Davis in 1972 seems an odd way to predict the future, but here we are. He writes, What will be the next step in the development of innovative academic calendars? It will be a calendar which takes into account variability in student learning rates. As such, it may be, in some respects, a non-calendar. <laughs> did, he, did he really write non-calendar? Maybe someday. But in today's higher ed landscape, I think that there are too many structures in place, specifically thinking about federal financial aid regulations that would complicate that approach to the structure of academic time. Call back. I'd like to mention here a few of the considerations that go along with creating an academic calendar. And some of these have been mentioned already, so thank you for your patience. This is not an all-encompassing list, but I offer it as some highlights. And I will be speaking from personal experience here, and I've only ever worked at institutions on the semester system. So if you're on the quarter system or any other category of calendar, just substitute that whenever I say semester and the issues probably still apply. In my experience, people often jump to when they want the fall semester to begin, 
when is the first day of classes in the fall? And this decision is often driven by when they want to be done with academic pursuits in advance of the winter holidays. But that's a dangerous proposition because you need to plan backward from fall in order to ensure that you have enough time for your summer sessions and that you leave enough time for spring. How many days should be between the last day of classes and final exams? What does the final exam period look like? Is commencement always on a set date, like the Saturday following exams, or is spring commencement always on Mother's Day? What will you do the week of Thanksgiving? How are you ensuring that each weekday has an equal number of meeting periods? How would incorporating a new holiday, Juneteenth for example, or let's continue to hope for Election Day as a federal holiday, how would that affect the rest of the calendar? Each term and each part of term needs to have these issues addressed and resolved in a way that supports the institution's goals and complies with accreditation standards and applicable federal regulations. It can be a lot to work through. So let's turn to some practical words of advice about the academic calendar. Someone at your institution should be responsible for maintaining the academic calendar. That someone is usually in the registrar's office, but not always. Regardless of who it is, there are a bunch of best practices that you should observe. First, future academic calendars should be published at a minimum a year in advance, but it's much better to have three to five years of future academic calendars available for review. Remember that students, faculty, and families will use the future academic calendars to make plans. So if they're tentative, be sure to mark them as such. What should be included in an academic calendar? Here again, you'll find a broad range of dates that may be included, but at a minimum, the following should be there. And these, to me, seem like common sense. The first day of classes the last day to add a class, the last day to drop a class without receiving a W, the last day to withdraw from a class with a W, refund dates where applicable, and if tuition refunds are on a sliding scale, the dates that those changes take effect. Last day to drop with a 100% refund, for example, last day to drop with a 50% refund, etc. Dates of official holidays, national, state, or institutional, and whether classes are held that day or not. Dates of breaks or recesses, spring break, fall break, the last day of classes, the final exam period, the last day of the term, and the date of commencement exercises. Those are the gotta be there kind of dates. You might also include dates of midterm exams or midterm grade reporting periods, the deadlines for dissertation or thesis submissions, the deadline to apply for graduation, and the dates for registration for the ensuing term or terms. Some institutions will also include a notation of alumni weekend or homecoming or other special types of institutional activities, and that will be dictated by institutional culture more than anything. Going very specific now, it's a good idea to include the day of the week along with the date whenever possible. For example, 
Monday, August 24th, first day of fall classes. This serves double duty as being very clear with the students about whether a deadline is a Monday or a Friday quickly at a glance. It's also a great double check for you while you're plotting out the dates. I can't tell you the number of times I've indicated a day of the week followed by a date only to have someone say, oh, hey, the 15th is a Tuesday that year as part of the review and the quality check. So day of the week is an important data element to include. Another best practice with academic calendars is to have a committee or a working group from across the institution to work together on plotting out future dates. Such a group will often include members of the faculty or more specifically members of the faculty senate, obviously members from the registrar's office, financial aid, student accounts, and sometimes admissions, the orientation team, or university life. Remember, a lot of things are determined by the academic calendar, and so having a lot of people involved as it's put together makes sense. It is a great idea to have a template for the overall governing structure of the academic calendar, but also a more specific template for each and every part of term or session with all of the agreed-upon guidelines for your institution's structure. Something that says, quote, we always start the spring semester on the Tuesday in January following Martin Luther King Jr. Day, for example. Or that the first day of classes in fall is always the fourth Monday of August. Having the guidelines written out in plain English for each of the dates that appear on the calendar makes it much easier to populate those dates in future years. It also makes it possible to do a lot of that templating in something like Microsoft Excel. And if it's you working on the upcoming dates, I highly recommend getting very comfortable with the complicated date formulas in Excel. They are a bear at first, but you will find them really, really helpful. Once your upcoming year or year's academic calendars have been drafted, reviewed, approved, and published, it's also a great practice to coordinate with your communications and marketing team to submit those dates through the official university calendar. That way, those important dates are included institution-wide. Don't rely on people to come to the registrar's website to find the term dates, although people definitely do that. You want to be proactive in pushing that information out so that people at your institution can benefit from it without having to go search for it. Are you still here? Did you make it through? Who knew that there was so much to say about the academic calendar? Our students' families will use them. Faculty rely on them. The terms are highly structured now, and it's our job to make sure that the dates are correct and that the calendars are accurate. It's a big job, and that's why registrars do it. Thanks so much for listening. Drop a line to registrarpodcast at gmail.com with any feedback, suggestions, or corrections. Join the mailing list from the ACRO website and check out the show notes for a partial list of references from this episode.
I'm excited about the upcoming episodes and I'm looking forward to sharing them with you. I hope that you'll stick around. Until next time, I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record. so much to squeeze in you If we publish right now, the faculty will know the date So, academic calendar Students' families will rely on you They will use you to book their flights They'll complain about finals right The term is highly 